and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. Let's go once again to Ephesians chapter 4. Last time we left off, having started the um, section that dealt with the worthy walk and how we're to walk worthy of all that we've been given. And that we do that as we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That unity is the practical application of the great mystery. The unity of this one body. And to state it another way, it's the family of God living in harmony. The family of God living in harmony. And that's what this section deals with. And it talks about how God designed His family, how this one body is to operate. And that's what we're going to look at here in more detail in chapter 4 as we get into it, how God arranged this body of Christ to operate so that all the members could be blessed, so that all the members could grow up into Christ. We'll begin in verse 8. We read these verses before, but we'll look at it a little closer this time. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, if you have a King James Version, and and if um, it's done right, you'll see that verses 9 and 10 are set apart in a parenthesis. And that that parenthesis is rightly supplied. A parenthesis is a figure of speech. And... A parenthesis does sort of what if you know the purpose of a parenthesis, even in common usage, it's still the same. A parenthetical statement further explains something that's been stated. And that's what verses 9 and 10, they just go into greater detail about him having ascended up on high and giving capti- leading captivity captive. Now, Something else to understand about a parenthesis, though, is the real thought flow, the real logic, is best understood by looking from where the parentheses, before the parentheses begins to after where it ends. It's not that that isn't important to the thought, but you follow the logic more easily if you sort of skip it for once when you're reading it. And so we'll do that here. He ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men, verse 11, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. These are the gifts that he gave unto men. You see how that thought flow goes? Led captivity captive, gave gifts unto men, and now it starts to detail what those gifts are. These are gifts that Jesus Christ gave to the church. And they have very specific functions. These gifts, also referred to often as the gift ministries, 
are those ministries, those ministers in the body of Christ who serve the function that's described in this section and that we'll get into in more detail. But there are five listed here, and each one is unique, and each one has a special function. And all five gift ministries are still in operation in the church. There are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Sometimes, some groups will want to leave out apostles, or they want to leave out prophets, or both of them. They're okay with their being evangelists, and they're okay with their being pastors, and they're okay with their being teachers. But if there were no apostles and no prophets, by sheer logic, there would be no evangelists, no pastors, no teachers, because all of these gifts were given to the church, and all will continue to perform their work until Christ returns, mm -hmm. until the gathering together. And you'll see that again as we get into the context more. I'll just describe briefly the particular function of each of those ministries, because it'll help to understand not only what they do, but this whole overall section. An apostle, as you study that through the Word of God, that word, apostle, and you see how it's used, you'll see that, the, that the, an apostle is one who brings new light to a generation. Paul was called to be an apostle. And God called him on the road to Damascus, and, and he had a very specific ministry. And he talks about it on an, in a number of places in the book of Acts. He talks about how he was told by God that he was separated to be an apostle, to give light unto the Gentiles, to open the eyes of them and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. An apostle does that. He gives light to a generation, new light. And it may not always necessarily be new light in that it's never been known before, but it's new to that generation. A prophet is one who speaks for God, and his job primarily is to call people back to God. As they've gone astray, a prophet's job is to, to reprove them, and to not necessarily in a harsh way, to, but to point out where they've gone astray and to call them back to God. A pastor is one who binds the wounds. He shepherds the flock. He watches over them, and he takes care of them, and he provides great healing to them. A teacher is pretty self-explanatory. We all understand the role that teachers serve. Teachers teach. And all the ministries have a, a component of teaching to them, but a teacher is one who is specifically adept at expounding the scriptures and making them very clear to people. Um, what did I leave out? Apostles, evangelists. An evangelist is one who wins people to the Lord. That's what an evangelist does. He's one that gets people born again and wins them to Christ. So those are the five ministries, and they have each that specific individual function. Verse 12 begins with the word for, and I've talked before about these little words with big meanings, these connective words. And for, that word indicates a purpose. The purpose being the perfecting of the saints. This is the job of what these ministries were given for, what these gifts were given to the church for. They were given for the perfecting of the saints. And the saints 
just refers to every born-again believer. You know, you don't have to live a perfect life and wait around a couple hundred years and then be canonized to become a saint. That's not how it works. A saint, biblically, just describes those that are believers, those that are they're saints. And they're saints because they have Holy Spirit, which is that nature of God. And here, these ministries operate to, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The perfecting of the saints with a view towards the work of the ministry, with a further view towards the building up of the body of Christ. Here again, the purpose of all this is describing how God set up the church to operate. God didn't just leave it to men to figure out how the church should function. He didn't leave it up to men to come up with their own plans or model it after some corporate model or some political model, but rather he set it up in his word of how the church would function. And these gift ministries are key in the function so that we can have the perfecting of the saints. The saints, the job of the leadership is to help them to be perfect in Christ. And, and we see that in other places where it's described such as when, when it talks about um, Christ in you, the hope of glory, uh, whom I teach, warning every man and preaching every man, teaching every man and warning every man in all wisdom that I may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The word of God is given for the purpose that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished or truly perfected unto all good works. That's the end. That's the goal. The goal is for us to be Christ-like, to be like him. And that's the perfecting it's talking about. Us becoming more and more like him. It's the goal of the individual, and it's the goal of the body to accomplish that, to build up the body in love. We'll keep reading. How long will this go on? Verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, who here is already a perfect man? Who here has attained the fullness of Christ, the measure of the stature? So then, obviously, we still need these ministries to be in operation. They still need to do their job because the body, overall, has not arrived at that place. And it won't. You know, it's a funny thing. You're always working toward a goal that you know you'll never completely achieve. That's what you're doing as a Christian. You're never going to be perfect, and yet you strive for perfection. Knowing that in the striving, in always the working to get better, you will get better. You'll become more like Him. You'll become more loving. You'll become more at peace. You'll draw, you will draw closer to God. You'll walk in greater power. But that won't happen if you're not always working toward that perfection. If you're not always pressing toward that goal, then it never happens. You'll never fully achieve it until he comes back. And when he arrives, when Jesus Christ returns, then we will have that perfect unity. Then we'll have that fullness that's described there. Verse 14, that we henceforth, 
here, that indicates another purpose, that we henceforth from now on be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. This is again a big part of what the ministries are there for, and this is a big part of what God wants for us, that we would grow up, that we wouldn't be little children, spiritually just babes in Christ. God wants us to be mature. We, we won't attain perfection, but we can attain maturity. We can learn how to pants ourselves. We can learn how to feed ourselves. We can get past just milk and be able to get to the meat of God's Word. We can become ones that are fully initiated, and that's what God wants. He wants us to not be little children that are just tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Isn't that a great phrase? What a wonderful mind picture, tossed to and fro. Um, it reminds me of like if you're ever on a ship out in the open sea where it gets, the waves get big and you're just like thrown about this way and that way, tossed to and fro. And that's the picture I get in what's being described here of those that are just being tossed to and fro and blown about with every wind of doctrine. You know, just, and there they go. They hear one thing, and they're off to follow that. You know, somebody says the way to get saved is to follow the Ten Commandments. And there they are. Somebody says it, there's a wind of doctrine, and it just carries them away. And then somebody else comes along, and they say, no, 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 it's not about following the Ten Commandments. You have to confess the sinner's prayer. And that's how you get saved. And then, there they go. They're just blown about in that direction. And then somebody else comes along and says, no, you don't get saved by, by confessing sins. You get saved by confessing the Savior from sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there they go in that direction. And I've known people who spend their entire lifetime just being blown about with every wind of doctrine. There they go. Somebody says this, and... What? That sounds logical at the time. They make a nice argument, and so they believe it. And somebody else has another argument that sounds logical to them, and there they go. One person says something, another says something else, and they're completely opposite, and yet they just keep being blown about. But God doesn't want that for the Christian. He doesn't want that for his children. He wants them to grow up, to be mature not blown about with every wind of doctrine, but to arrive at the place where you know that you know that you know that you know. Where you know it. Not because this guy said it, not because that one said it, not because this fella has more letters after his name than this fella, or he's a nicer guy, or, you know, there's a bigger group. <laughs> but because you know what God's Word says, and that's the criteria, that's the rule book. People say, well, you know, how can you know? Everybody's got their own interpretation of the Bible. Well, that may be true, but it's wrong because God's Word says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. No one has the right to have their own interpretation of the Bible. Not me, not you, not the guy at the church across the street or the Pope in Rome. Nobody has the right to have their own private interpretation. Well, if you can't privately interpret it, then what do you do? You let the Word of God interpret itself. You do that 
with applying keys to biblical research. Principles and keys of research that work with the same kind of mathematical exactness and scientific precision that the laws of science work with. If you conduct an experiment in a laboratory and you follow the same exact formula that somebody else does, you'll get the same results. You can, you know, imagine if you opened up your cookbook and you turned it to the page of how to make a cake and instead you ended up making casserole. Wouldn't that be a surprise? You know, how much could you trust that? But my goodness, if we can make a cake or a casserole without a problem, we certainly should be able to know what God's Word says. And it's a lot more important than that cake or casserole. We're talking about such important matters as eternal life. You know, I had a dear friend who, who you know, had, had a, at one point been pretty solid, and then he, he allowed himself to get in that position of being blown about, and he said, well, you know, I don't feel like I have to know everything. You know, we see through a glass darkly now. So I don't feel like I have to know everything either, but I think eternal life's pretty important. <laughs> I, think, I think knowing whether you're getting to heaven or not is a pretty good one to know. We don't claim to know it all, and it's an ongoing process. But what we do know is that the Word of God is truth. We know the one who knows it all. We know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know the Word is truth, and we know that the keys to the Word's interpretation work. It doesn't mean that we've always, that we've always know how to perfectly apply those, but I know that those keys work, and they're simple. It's simple. It's such simple keys as letting the Word of God interpret itself in the verse, in the context, where it's been used before, a few other keys like that, that when applied, it takes the guesswork out of it. And you don't have to take this guy's opinion for it, this guy's opinion for it, but you can see it yourself. And you get convinced to the point where nobody will talk you out of it because you've worked it. And that's the responsibility of every believer. That's the responsibility of every believer. It says in 2 Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That you are a workman who can stand approved of his workmanship. That you don't have to, you know, come in and say, Boy, I hope they don't look too close there at that detail. I didn't quite cut that corner right. But you know you've done it right. You know you've done it right to the very best of your ability. And that's what God expects of us. When that's the case, we're not blown about with every wind of doctrine. And it says, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. And there are those that would deceive. There are those who just mishandle the word of God deliberately. And I'm not saying that, you know, because somebody disagrees with me that that's the case by any means. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But certainly there are those who would manipulate the word for their own gain and to put people under their control. And it says to not, not fall prey to that. But instead, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love. The truth. What is truth? Thy word is truth. It's the word of God. 
And it's the Word of God has it spoken, has it's taught, has it's lived, has it's believed that enables us to grow up into Him, which is the head, Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Not some head of some denomination, not some other man. Only one man is the head of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the one that God put at the head of the church. And He's the one we follow. He's the one that is our Lord. He is the one that we take direction from. And verse 16 says, From whom, whom referring, of course, to Christ, the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. That's, uh, there's a lot of phrases in that verse. That's a jam-packed verse, and it's one that you know, we could spend uh, an hour just breaking down, but I won't take the time to do that right now. I'll give you the overview and, and let you read it carefully yourself. You have this whole body, okay? This body referring to the body of Christ. And that body of Christ is the church. It is comprised of everyone that is born again of God's Spirit, from the day of Pentecost until the day that he returns. That's the church. That's the body of Christ. That's the church of the body. And that's the only thing that God looks at. As far as God's concerned, when it comes to the classification of people, there are Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. You know, we can call ourselves, you know, Protestants or Catholics, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Baptists, Fundamentalists. God doesn't look at any of that. All he looks at is if you're born again of his spirit, if you any time in your life confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you're part of that church. You're part of that body. You're part of that body. And that body has been fitly joined and compacted together. God set each member in the body where it pleased him. And he's put us in this body and then he's put it together in just this wonderful way. This wonderful way where it just fits. It just fits just like the human body is arranged so that it fitly joined together. And it grows up according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. That's how the body makes increase unto the edifying of itself in love. We build the church. The church builds the church. And it's not some building with a steeple on it. It is this group, this body. It's up to the church to build itself up. If it's going to get done, we have to edify one another. We have to build one another up. How do we do it? By following Him, by following Christ. As we as individual members grow up in Him... That's how we're taking direction from him in order to be able to edify one another. If I become more Christ-like, then I can legitimately build up Dylan. You know, if I'm just going on my own ideas, my own personality, well, that's pretty unreliable, you know. I might build him up or I might make him feel terrible. I don't know. But if I'm, if I'm mature, if I'm growing up in him, 
then the words that I speak, the actions that I take, the things that I do, that's going to help him. That's going to bless him. That's going to build him up. And then as Dylan does that, grows up in Christ, he can help Pete to grow, and so on and so forth. And we all give something to one another. This is the way that God designed it. And it is the church building itself where each member is so important. And boy, people have so missed that. They look to you know, the guy up front that it's, it's his job to take care of people. And it is. It is. And maybe you know, he may have a greater responsibility, but he can't do it by himself. It has to be each individual member doing what he can do, him growing up him working to edify those around him. What a wonderful way to change the world, you know? We can change the world. Somebody says, oh, you can't change the world. Well, why not? Because people are sure doing it negatively all the time. <laughs> you want to see the world change? You want to see if people can change the world? Uh, you know, I won't go there, but I can sure come up with a whole lot of easy examples in my lifetime how people have negatively changed the world. And I can even point out names that have contributed greatly to it. Why not expect to change the world positively? Why not be a person that, you know, you have the impact in your life to, to make things better, to, to make this world a better place, a place where Christ's love dwells? Hmm. Verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth from now on walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves up over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, that's saying in a lot more detail what I, what I said. There's those that certainly have changed the world negatively. There are certainly those that have had a very negative impact. And we are not to be like them. We're not to be like other Gentiles. We're not to be like unbelievers, you know, to make it a, a, a term that maybe relates to our minds more. Those that don't love God, those that couldn't care less about Jesus Christ, those that are only out for themselves, those who are living according to their own lust and only following their own lust, and with it, you know, they make the world a worse place. And they do this because their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God because of the blindness of their heart. You know, it says in another place that if our gospel be hid, it is hid from those whom Satan hath blinded. And that's the case. The devil works in his role in this world as Satan. And Satan describing his influence in the world. And all the different things that he controls and all those different areas. And it's this kind of, that's kind of that cue ball effect. You know, that's how he works. He works with those that he can directly control to affect those who then are indirectly controlled until he gets to you. You know, so it's like the old analogy. I, I use it many times, you know. You go into work, you know, the boss yells at you, you know, you yell at, you come home, you yell at the, the wife, the wife yells at the kid, the kid kicks, kicks the dog. You know, it's just that trickle-down effect. And that's how life is if we let it. 
But we can choose to break that vicious cycle. We can choose to be, you know, where the switches flip the other way, where rather than allow us to be just dragged down, we are ones that build people up. And that's why verse 20 says, But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation or way of living, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We're to put off the old man, and that's referring to the old nature. The Christian has two natures. He has the old nature, the nature that he's born with, of just flesh and blood. And that nature is bad. It's, it's evil. But we also have a new nature, and that's that new man, the Christ within us. And in order to grow up, in order to be mature Christians, we have to put off the old and put on the new. And then the next section deals in detail with that, but we'll wait till next week to get into that. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.